You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share with you simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your home, as well as giving you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created this safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversation with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I wanted to share a conversation I had with an amazing human, Patty Whiffler, more than four years ago. So this has been a while, and uh, you will probably hear some... uh, (laughs) maybe challenges I had as an interviewer. I have learned a lot over the past few years, and I apologize. There are at times some background noises that um, I'm unable to get rid of. So I invite you to pour yourself a cup of tea or any kind of beverage. This is a longer conversation, but a very, very important one. Uh, We had a wonderful conversation around setting limits and building cooperation with our children. We touched on several different topics around that, some very uh, good tools that she shared with us. And you might also... Uh, notice a story that actually uh, Tosha, Tasha Shore shared with us in episode five. And I just re-listening to it, I put the two of them together. Um, they have co-authored a book called Listen, Five Simple Tools to Meet Your Everyday Parenting Challenges. And Tasha had shared a story about one of her child in episode five. And in this one, Patty shares about a parent. And I do think it's the same. So that was kind of fun to discover that. So yes, I invite you to listen into this um, wonderful conversation I had with Patty Whiffler, who is the founder of Hand in Hand Parenting since 1989, has been doing amazing, amazing work helping us parents uh, navigate what she calls a real uh, emotional work that we do when we parent. So uh, listen in and enjoy. Thanks for inviting me, Jean-Marie. I'm excited to be with you and with the folks who are listening in. Yeah. Good. So I, I wanted to start first, Patty, kind of on a, on a personal note. I, I've been doing this with a uh, most of the experts and just let the viewers know a little bit about yourself and kind of what made you decide to do the work that you do today with parents and children. Well, I grew up as the oldest of a family of six. My mother was, we had a lot of illness in our family. My mother was ill a lot. So I wound up playing with the younger children in our family, babysitting all over the place, playing with cousins. I I really loved being with children. And I thought parenting for me is going to be like falling off a log. It's like, I I know how to be with kids. It's going to be wonderful. 
And uh, But, you know, the stress of parenting catches up with you. It catches up with all of us, as far as I can tell. And it caught up with me. Uh, I didn't know what to do when I started being harsh with my children. I started really becoming a danger to them. And I was shocked at myself, and I had no idea what to do. And I didn't talk to anybody about it, but I knew I was really in trouble because I was getting more and more angry with my two little boys, and uh, they didn't deserve that. So... Um, one day someone asked me, what's it like to be a mom? And I just looked at her and I burst into tears and I cried really hard for about 15 minutes about just the, the violence that was in my family growing up off and on and how badly I did not want to repeat that, but how I was beginning to repeat it and I didn't know what to do. I just cried and cried and cried. And I, I don't know, the first time I'd cried, second time I'd cried as an adult, probably it was just surprising and and it made a huge difference. I went back to my kids and I had patience again and I was relaxed and I could play and I wasn't a, you know, a ticking time bomb. And I just went back to the woman who I'd had this conversation with and I, I asked her what she did and she knew how to listen. And so I got into a group that was exchanging listening time, free, you know, we'll teach you how to listen, exchange this time with somebody else. And I hooked up with a dad who was in a very, very difficult place. And we started listening to each other, and it made this giant difference in my ability to parent my kids well, thoughtfully, the way I wanted to. So I began exploring this for myself. Um, and then other moms who had young children and I got together and just went, you know, we're carrying around all these feelings, and they're mostly from our childhoods. How can we keep our kids from having to, you know, drag all of this emotional upset into adulthood like we've had to do? And we started a little school at my house to see if we could learn how to listen to children. And I've been absolutely engaged and passionate about all the things I've been learning since then. And um, it's just having seen a lot of trouble in my childhood, it's exactly the thing that I would have chosen to do if I were six years old you know so I've been really fortunate oh wonderful wonderful and just just the fact that it's evolved so much from really the heart and, and your needs to to be a better parent is just um, very powerful thank you for sharing that thank you yeah so I know that in the work that you do you talk a lot about setting limits and building cooperation what are the key ideas you present to parents and how do they differ from other limit-setting frameworks uh, that are uh, more traditional? Sure. I think the traditional limit-setting framework um, doesn't have an analysis of why children go off track that's actually accurate. Um, there are various ideas about why children misbehave and they go all the way from you know, children are born bad. That's the tradition I was grown up in. You have a little spot on your soul and, you know, you, ha you, have, you have this capacity to be bad in you and you have to somehow scrub it out. Um, all the way from that to um, children are, they're, they strive for power and they want, to, they want to control their parents and um, they're defiant. You know, they, I don't know, some, sometimes it's, it's personality and lots of analyses of what, what this is. And the methods then are almost always some version of, you know, carrots and sticks. You know, if you do this, then you can have a cookie after dinner. And if you don't, then there's no cookie. And um, 
all the way from that to spankings and beatings and the things that we, that many of us grew up with. Um, and I, the, the research shows very, very clearly that being harsh towards children, in particular physical harshness, but also belittling them um, over and over again, making them feel unsafe in their own home or with their own people, really results in much more difficulty in a child's life. And it also results in poor health, it turns out. Um, so it, it, and I think when you take a look at who's in jail, um, people in jail are almost always people who have been spanked, physically threatened, physically punished, or who just have not, for one reason or another, been able to feel safe in their own lives, in their own families. So, um, but it's, you know, research is not the base of what we what we do. Um, the base of what we do is our experience using a different framework, which is the idea that we are good and our children are good and they love to cooperate. And that when children go off track, it's not because they're bad, it's not because they're willful, it's not because, although they certainly do appear to be, <laughs> it's not because they want to get us, it's not because they want to control us. None of those things are, those are how we feel about a challenging situation. Those are the feelings we get when, when a child has a behavior that, that makes us feel helpless or um, at bay. But what's really going on is that children need to feel connected in order to think. That feeling of connection is absolutely vital to a mind that can use its full intelligence. And when children lose that sense of connection with their parents, when they can't, when they don't feel that someone's thinking about them, they can't feel, they don't feel safe, they feel surprised by something and it feels threatening to them. You know, any kind of appearance of threat or interpretation of a situation that they don't understand so that it feels like threat to them or any absence of parental attention, um, even for a moment, creates a feeling of hurt inside a child. And when children feel hurt, um, feelings flood their intelligence and they can't think. All they can do is feel. And children, it turns out, signal instantaneously when they, when they lose their sense of connection. They cry, they, you know, dig their heels in and refuse to do something, you know, totally ordinary like brush their teeth or put on their coat or pick up their shoes um, or, you know, stop throwing food off the high chair tray. <laughs> Although some of those, some of that is little experiments with gravity that um, are fascinating. Um, but some of it is they'll look you straight in the eye and they know you don't want them to do that. They pick up their peas and throw it. And uh, that that's a child's signal that I know our bodies are in the same room together, but I can't feel you here. I am going nuts. And um, so our understanding of what's happening is that there's a simple break in connection that has a physical base um, in the brain and that when a child's feelings are flooding their system, their connection to the prefrontal cortex, their access to the judgment they've collected, to a good attention span, their access to um, impulse control, their access to their short-term memory, all of that is cut off. You know, it's all still there, but they can't access it. And therefore, their behavior is um, not, not easy to be with. 
um, and we try to help them, it all gets worse because they can't feel us there. So almost anything we do makes them feel worse. And so our, our way of looking at this is that when a child goes off track, the only thing that really improves their ability to think is feeling connected again. And the interesting point about that is that when you connect with a child who has gone off track, they express their feelings. They begin to feel your caring. They begin to feel your support. And out comes a whole bunch of laughter. You know, as in when you try to keep a child from running out the back door, you say it's lunchtime and they look at you and they run out the back door. You put your hand on their tummy and you go, na, na, na. And they will laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. That's offloading emotional tension. It's offloading the hurt of, I don't really feel connected to you for whatever reason. But crying and tantrums and sweating and struggling and trembling, all of that is how children release the, the negative feelings that come from having gotten disconnected. And since disconnection is, you know, an inevitable feature of every day, it's like there's no parent who has the capacity in today's world to connect all the time. Um, and even if they did, children would be surprised or scared by certain situations they couldn't anticipate and they'd lose their feeling of connection, you know, through just, you know, the, you know, day-to-day life. It's, you know, life is mysterious and surprising. And so, so the idea is that children aren't bad. They're not trying to get us. They can't think something, something very physical has happened inside the brain to shut off their connection with their, um, rational mind, the, the part of their mind that can learn. And if we guard them, protect them, and pay attention to them, they will offload all of that feeling. And when they're finished crying or having a tantrum or when they've laughed enough, they'll be able to look at us in the eye again. They'll be able to relax. And, and they will function very, very well. It just changes how a child is from night to day um, when you listen to a child's big feelings after you've set a limit. So we differ in that we don't think that rewards and punishments are necessary And we also don't think they're that good for children. And Alfie Cohen has done a really good job of illuminating, you know, the the disadvantages that children who are praised a lot um, carry into the world of learning and and leading their lives um, because they are made to feel dependent on someone's verbal appreciation and lose their own sense of who they are and what they want. Um, So we're, we're, we're... I mean, when when we can't think, when a parent is off track and they're having big big feelings about a situation that just happened, um, we're not very good at thinking of anything except what our parents did with us. So we, we get caught that way. Um, and in those cases, you know, a timeout is fine. It's like when you're ready to strangle your child, um, a timeout is a good idea because you can't really be helpful in that state of mind. And your child is off track and they're not thinking. So some way of not hurting them and giving you both a little bit of breathing time to kind of collect yourselves um, and come back to one another again in some fashion is not a bad idea. Um, But it's not the best we can do. I think the best we can do is come in, listen, allow our children to express the hurt that they felt, connect with them. So if we could expand on that, I mean, how can children learn to cooperate without rewards? 
for their cooperation or without any punishment or consequence for misbehavior. I mean, aren't you being a little too optimistic about children's abilities? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, we've got thousands of anecdotes um, of parents using our way of setting limits with children that show that um, your real child and your child's instinct to cooperate really shines with enough listening to peel off some of the accumulated hurt that they've gathered before you started to listen. So I'll give you a few anecdotes of what's possible. The, the very first time that I saw how powerful this was was a time when um, my two-and-a-half-year-old son, maybe he was two and three-quarters, had a really bad case of pink eye, and I had to get dr drops, and I needed to be able to put those drops in his eyes three times a day. And I just knew he was going to be terrified, and he was. When I showed him the bottle and I said, I have to put these drops in your eyes, he just began crying right there. And um, I had been, I knew that listening worked for me, and I didn't really know what to do in this case, but I just thought, I don't really want to have to, you know, tie him down to put the drops in. That, that would be awful, and I don't know how to get the drops in if I don't tie him down, so I think I'm just going to show him the bottle and let him have his feelings, and I'm going to listen, and we'll see what happens. And it took about 45 minutes, but I kept showing him the bottle and saying, I need to put these in your eyes, which is a limit. It's actually an expectation. It's like, I'm going to do this. And, but I allowed him plenty of time to have his feelings, and he cried and cried and cried. And um, when it seemed to be getting a little bit stale, I just said, you know, I'm going to show you how the drops come out of the dropper. So I opened it, and I, I squeezed the drops, and then he looked at that, and I said, I'm going to need to do this in your eyes, and he just threw himself back and wailed some more. And um, we just did this for a long, long time. I had no idea what this, what was going to happen. And finally, um, he said, Mommy, can I put the drops in my eyes myself? And I was... Uh, that, that thought would not have occurred to me in, in, in 10 years. It's like, <laughs> two-year-olds don't do this. But I said, well, sure, you know, but if, if it doesn't work, then I'll have to help you. And by that point, he had cried for quite a while, and um, he laid down, and I positioned the dropper above his eyes, and I said, okay, you can squeeze now. And he squeezed drops into one eye, and then he squeezed drops into his other eye, and he missed one, so he had to do one more. And he blinked his eyes, and he got up, and he smiled at me, and he ran, ran off. And it was no problem putting drops in his eyes after that. It was just, you know, it was like putting on socks. It's like, you know, Jacob, lay down. i got to put drops in your eyes. Okay. You know. So, his, so the fear that was interfering with his ability to do what needed to be done, I listened to. When it was gone, it was gone. And he took charge of it. And, you know, it's just one example of many. Um, there's another, let's see. Um, there's a, a mom, this is with an older child, um, a mom who whose son loves baseball, but he also is a, a child who's pretty anxious. And he's really a good baseball player. And this was when he was in sixth grade, I think. Um, and when spring spring tryouts came, he just said, I'm not going to tryouts. I don't want to play baseball anymore. Um, I don't want to go to tryouts. 
And she went and sort of worked on her feelings about, oh my gosh, my son who is absolutely in love with baseball doesn't want to go to tryouts. What's going on here? And came back a little later and said, you know, I don't want you to to not go to tryouts because I think it's because you're scared. You cannot go to tryouts because you don't want to play baseball, but I think you're scared to go to tryouts. So I need you to go to tryouts. I want you to go to tryouts. I will not let you not go to tryouts. And he cried and cried and cried. And it wasn't finished. He cried some more the night before tryouts, and she listened. And the day of tryouts, she you know, got him into his baseball uniform and got him down there, and he had a huge cry in the car. You know, I don't want anybody to see me. What if I make a mistake? I can't go to tryouts. I don't want anybody to see me. You know, just really working on, you know, the, the prospect of public humiliation. Um, and he cried for about an hour in the car. She got there early, anticipating that he would have more feelings. And what was great was a father walked by and, uh, and could, you know, you could hear him out the window. And he walked by and he came over and he knocked on the window and he said, this used to happen to me every tryouts too. I'm so glad you're listening to him and walked on, which is highly unusual, but it was it was very helpful to her. And when he was finished crying, you know, he went out and told her where to sit so he could see her and feel her support, told her where to sit, and um, there she was, and he, you know, he aced the tryouts and it hasn't happened again. It's like he just needed to get through his anxieties, his fears. So... Yeah, those are just a few examples of... Mm -hmm. But just, I mean, I just love it because it's really about, and and I mean, I think it goes, works with adults too, is just acknowledging that we're, you know, having a feeling, a very strong feeling about something and that to just let us have that moment is is so important. Yes, Uh, yes. What parents need, what's, what's beautiful about this is that we... We are so much more important in our children's lives than the cookie that they might get or the dessert or the trip to the toy store. It's like things are really, things look like they are of deep interest to children, um, and they are, but they don't, we trump things anytime. And when a child can't think, getting in and connecting and pouring connection into them while they pour the feelings that that make them resist the connection or make it impossible for them to feel the connection is exactly what they need to do. And when they've poured off enough feelings, they can feel the connection that we've been offering and it empowers them in a way that no, no bribe and no punishment could because it gives them a better mind, a mind that's freer of stored emotion, um, a mind that has learned from the situation. And the idea, you know, bribes don't teach children anything except that, you know, there's an economy that goes between you and your parents and you can work that system and you can get bigger and better stuff if you, if you jockey for it. And that rivets children's attention on things, which is, you know, it really demeans you and the relationship in some way. So, so this is a way to be important in your child's life. It's like listening is a very powerful tool. So, which brings me to um, what you, your approach that is listen, limit, listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does that, um, 
how does your listen limit uh, listen approach mesh with the rewards and punishment framework that most parents um, were either brought up with or might use um, in one version or another? I mean, how does that? Uh, it doesn't really mesh. Yeah. Right. It, there's yeah. not right. Uh, there's it's really two whole different ways of seeing things. Could you and, could you give um, kind of for our viewers a, a, a real concrete? Um, I mean, I, I know you have, but just how that whole approach works to setting limits. I mean, um, you know, I know that there's some limits that there's really no negotiation. You know, running out into the street or or you know, a parking lot or things like that. Um, but how do you? You know, how do you help a, a parent um, get out of the house on time in the morning? You know, there, there, those are limits. Those, there's things that need to get done. Um, how do you work that? Okay, okay. Um, there's there there are strategies for the a present moment, like a, a present difficult moment, and there are other listening tools that we use to keep building the relationship, the feeling of connection between parent and child um, every day. And both of these kinds of strategies are important. And the long-term strategies are when you're having a particular difficulty over and over um, to plump up your child's sense of connection with you, you do what we call special time, which is taking five minutes even or 10 minutes or more, but five or 10 minutes is actually very effective and saying, I'm going to do whatever you want to do. What do you want to do? And giving, beaming your approval and your interest and your excitement about being with your child to your child and dropping everything else that's on your mind. And so, for instance, in the example of, you know, we have to get out of the house in the morning. The reason that that gets hard is that our minds are preoccupied with getting things done from the moment we climb out of bed. Our minds are not really paying attention to connecting with our children. And like breakfast, um, children need a good, warm, hearty sense of connection in order to make it out into the world. It's like if you don't give them breakfast, they don't function well out there. And if they don't have some connection, they don't even function before you get out the door. So special time is one way, for instance, that we found that parents who have trouble in the morning really can make a big difference is just before you get out, get your anything but your jammies on, before you brush your teeth, before your child puts on their clothes, before you ask them to do any one thing, you go and you just go, five minutes for you, what do you want to do? And it allows your child to connect before all of these other necessities have to happen. And it gives you a better sense of who you're with in your family as well. So it's actually good for both parent and child. It's like we don't have our best lives while we're thinking about how fast can we make breakfast and looking at our watches. That's not all that fun for us. Paying attention to our children improves our mornings too. And then, and what happens is that if your child has a big backlog of feelings that have never been heard, special time connecting with you um, gives them enough encouragement that you care that they then have a big upset over a tiny thing because they they know there's more connection that you're offering 
and something in their system goes, I would, I would get more of this really great stuff if I wasn't carrying so many feelings from yesterday and the day before and when the baby, when the, my little sister was born and, you know, from the time I was in the hospital, it's like I have all of this cleaning up to do. It all gets in the way. So then you cut their toast a certain way and they burst into tears because they wanted rectangles and you did triangles. And um, what you do is you learn, as you learn your child and as you learn when the hot spots are in your child's day, um, you plan better and better so that you get up 20 minutes earlier so that your child can have these big cries in the morning so that you can really listen for most of the cry, if not all of it. And that relaxes your child. It relaxes you. It gives you a way to be a, a benevolent, loving parent and still get out the door on time because you actually have planned in emotional relief for your child, connection and then emotional relief. Um, and then your child can you know, run out the door pleased as punch and you know, be the first one to the, to the car door and give the favored backseat to their little sister because they are feeling generous. It's like they feel so much better. So there, there are other listening tools that can help pave the way. But in the moment, um, you know, just doing, you know, there are times when you just have to bumble through. It's like your child won't get out the door. They don't, they're not having a big cry or they are, but you have to get to the doctors on time. You know, otherwise you'll miss the appointment and we have to get to work on time. So you just pick them up and you say, I know this is hard. I have to put you in your car seat. I know this hurts your feelings. I'm sorry. Here we go. And then you make the thing happen that needs to happen with as little show of force as you can and with as little upset on your part as you can. And we, don't, we don't do perfectly under those situations, but our children will work on them later. If, they, if we learn to listen to them, we can clean up after ourselves by listening better tomorrow. Right. And, and could you, would, you, would you advise of going back in that situation, maybe, you know, when everybody's calmed down, just to reflect on, on what happened and that I had to pick you up and, and so forth? I mean, do you, do, you, do you recommend that we go back and talk about it? Not usually. Um, I recommend that parents apologize for their anger and their their roughness. I mean, when we get angry, we get impulsive, we become rough, we do the stuff that our parents did to us, which was unkind and unthoughtful and a power play. And when that tension leaks out on us, I think it always makes sense to apologize. But when there's been a rough spot, um, I, I don't think children like to go back over it except to get an apology. Um, I think what we need to do is we need to talk about it, not to our children, but to another adult. It's like So part of our approach is getting parents to listen to one another so that we have a place to go with all the heated feelings and frustration and, oh, I am so sick of all of this trouble in the morning. I can't stand it. I'm ready to give up. And we need to tell another person that we need to have a good cry. We need to stomp and rage. You know, we need to go somewhere with that. That's what drives us off track. So we need to take that to someone who can handle it. And then just lay plans and say, sweetie, we're getting up 20 minutes earlier tomorrow so that um, I can be more relaxed through breakfast. Not, 
so that when you have your god awful cry in the morning, you know, I have to, you know, but you, so you basically take care of your own upsets, do, do, you know, make some adjustments in how you do things, and then you just do them that way and um, see what happens. So do your experiments. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, how can, uh, how can parents develop the patience it takes to bring limits without criticism or hardness to the situation? Well, it's really the best method that I know of is striking up what we call a listening partnership with another parent. Um, it just makes all the difference in the world. It's like parenting is a very complex kind of work. And most people who are doing complex jobs they go to trainings, they get four years of schooling, they have, you know, associations of people who do their job. You know, even if you, what you do is lay asphalt, you know, for the, for the highway department, um, when there are problems, there are people that you can converse with, people who have more experience than you. It's like, you know, there are places to go um, to problem solve. And for us, there isn't much of that except kind of casually in the park. And then mostly it's a kind of a gripe fest. You know, it's like, oh, this, and oh, that. And no one's really listening. People are butting in. People are getting to say 30 seconds of their challenge. And somebody else comes in with their similar challenge. And a third person comes in. And there's no room to just really examine your thinking and think all the different times that this has happened. And what are all the things you've tried? And how have you felt about yourself as you handled this? And how do you feel about your child? We have a whole emotional life that has no place to go, no one to understand it. And so building a listening partnership is really, really helpful. And when you can get a regular chance to, to cry, um, to laugh, to tell all the stories about what you've been through in the last week, it just it makes a huge difference in how well you're able to. I mean, it just takes a lot of emotional garbage out and instead, you have love and you have thinking and you have experiments and you are just a much saner person with your child. And it, we call it patience. Um, in a way, it's just a smaller emotional backpack. We are just less burdened with tension as we do this hard work right, of care. Right, because we've been able to let go of it by having other adults listen. Um, yeah. what, I mean, I, this is a little bit off track, but how, how would you help parents whose partner doesn't always isn't always there to listen or doesn't um tend to to agree maybe to how things are being done because i know that that is something that parents struggle with is is just that partnership in parenting and and we don't always see eye to eye i mean i know um no. you know in my personal family life i don't always agree with um you know, how my husband might be doing something. And, and, and I know that that can build tension. And how do you help kind of families deal with that, that aspect of it? Right. Um, I've got a detailed article on our website called Partnering Well as Parents. And there's another article written by one of our instructors called Parenting from Different Pages. And those are two articles kind of talking about the challenges. Um, in the first place, we can't ever expect that any two parents would parent exactly the same way. It does not, does not happen in the real world. We imagine that somebody else, in somebody else's family it's happening, but um, I don't, not, not as far as I've ever heard. 
Um, and children can deal with parents who do things different ways. They can figure out, you know, how to how to relate differently to parents who have different styles or or even different very core beliefs about parenting. Um, again, most of what needs to happen, I think, is just working on our feelings, um, our fears. Um, so often parents fear that what the other parent is doing, the way the other parent is parenting, is going to ruin the child. And, um, and that's a fear. It's not a fact um, necessarily. It's a fear. It may also be a fact that the other that the child is getting hurt by the you know, the other person's parenting practices, but before you can handle it well, you have to work on your fear, which will allow you to try to connect. and And part of it is the art of connecting with our partners. Um, we, if we're lucky, we have a chance to connect with our partners well before we have children. Many of us are not so lucky. Um, as to have that time. And what happens as soon as you have a child is all the ways that you used to connect with your partner um, generally kind of blow right out the window. You know, there's enough time, you're, you're sleep-deprived, they're sleep-deprived, they're struggling to, you know, support the family in their way, you're struggling to support the family in your way. Those two ways are very different things, you know, earning money outside the family and, and tending children inside the family are two really different endeavors. Um, and the time and the attention for reconnection um, is very, very meager. And I think that a lot of what happens is just this inability to reconnect or to be able to prioritize the, the parent-to-parent connection. So, and oftentimes after you've spent, you know, gotten through the first year of parenting a young child, you don't even want to connect with each other. It's like there's so many feelings built up that it is very difficult. And that, again, this is where listening partnerships come in handy. And having, once you're, you know, once you've had a place to work on your feelings about the disconnection and your worries about what the other person is doing and how that affects your child, um, there are agreements that you can make. You know, agreements that when your partner is, you know, is doing something that you don't agree with, that you will sit quietly and pay attention and try to learn as much as you can from what goes on. And that at a later time, when you're not upset, when you've taken care of your upset, you can talk about it. And that they will agree to do the same. And sometimes agreements like that are possible so that people can actually, instead of reacting in the moment and feeling and insulting the other parent in the process, um, you know, there can really be a discussion about it and, and looking really at what actually happens to the children when, when you do this and when I do that. And uh, people can learn from one another rather than just reacting, popping off at one another. And... So it, it is possible to learn from each other. It is very tricky. So parenting is such a hard job. And it, yeah. So that's what I would say. No, that's the great, great advice. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, now, to, to go back to a more personal uh, note, if, if I may, um, if you were to go back in time, and give yourself um, some advice as you were expecting your first child. What would be the the wise advice that you would give uh, the young 
woman that you were, uh, you know, about to about to get on this journey of, of parenting? I think what I would say is um, parenting is emotional work. You have never done emotional work before in your life. You know, you've cried a little bit about this and you've had big feelings about that, but you have never really done emotional work in your life. You are about to have to do emotional work. Find someone to listen to you, learn how to listen, learn how to use a listener so that you can notice your feelings, you can have your feelings with someone who won't judge you for them, um, and build good emotional support around you. Because when your baby cries, you are, you're going to have so many feelings, you're not going to know what to do with them. And when your baby refuses to walk, they can walk, and they refuse to walk outside, they have to be held, you are not going to know what to do. You are not going to know that your baby just needs to cry about separation and after he, he cries about separation, then he'll walk happily to the park. Um, and so just parenting is emotional work. Get yourself emotional support so that you can do this really important aspect of parenting. You know, And the, the play and the snuggling and the fun and the watching your child learn, all of that will happen. And you'll be so much freer to appreciate it all and enjoy it all if you've got an avenue for offloading you know the feelings that come with all of that right right that that is very very wise advice because i know with the expectant families that i work with i really you know really encourage building that tribe of of support around you but um I had never thought of it as that that emotional work and that we also need, you know, not only for the physical care, the food and, and, and you know, giving rides or whatever it, it, that we need at the beginning, but that whole emotional um, journey that we embark as parents. Um, very, very. Thank you, Patty, for being with us today. It's uh, been really a, a pleasure to get to know you and listen to all of these wise advice that you have for parents um, everywhere. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Take care, John Marie. Thank I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time. <laughs>